Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So it was January 2002. I was up with my wife. We were playing a board game called Parcheesi. I don't know if you remember that board game, Parcheesi. It's the real game of India. It's a great game. Anyway, we we were playing some Parcheesi because it was it was over a Christmas break. I was in seminary at the time. We'd only been married for just a few months, and we were just doing something to pass the time. And and we got into an epic, dangerous game of Parcheesi. Now, if you don't understand Parcheesi, you won't understand the, the story. So let me go ahead and explain the board game to you. It's pretty simple. So you have four pawns, and the idea is that you're supposed to roll some dice and move them around the board. If you can go all the way around the board and make it from your home base into the center area, get all four of your pawns there, then you win the game. Now, it doesn't sound very strategic, but it is incredibly strategic, and it is cutthroat. One of the main reasons why is when you're moving your pawns around, your opponent, if they roll the dice and land in the same square, they send you all the way home. And it doesn't matter if you're about to finish that pawn in the center square, you go all the way back to the beginning. And so oftentimes, these games can take hours and hours. This particular night, we had been playing for six straight hours, one game of Parcheesi. And the reason why is because my wife and I are so stinking competitive, we would not let the other person win. We just kept sending the pawns back. And we were, we were at it from 9 a.m., or excuse me, 9 p.m. to about 3 a.m. We were playing one game of Parcheesi, trying to beat the other person. And this, this was testing our brand new little marriage here. We'd only been married for a few months. We didn't know if we were going to make it after this war game of Parcheesi. But finally, around 3, 3.15, she, she goes past, past my, my last pawn, makes her fourth pawn enter into the center square, and she wins. She had bested me. And you want to know what I did? I stood up from the table. I looked her right in the eyes, and I swept that whole board right off, and I turned around, and I just walked away. Wouldn't even look at her. <laughs> how, how pathetic is that? I, I, I get beaten by a board game, by my wife, and all I could do is wipe the board off and, and pout and run off. What a sore, stinking loser I am. I am certain in that moment, my wife said, what have I done marrying this creep? Because this, this was a horrible view of me for the first time she'd seen. I wasn't just competitive. I was a sorry dog loser. I, I, I had to live with that. I was faced with it in that moment. And, and here's what's so crazy about it. I've, I've recognized from then that it's not just I'm a competitive person, I am. It's not just that I'm a hyper-competitive person. It's that I hate losing so much, I am a spoiled loser. It, it is a horrible attribute. I, I hate even confessing that to you, but that's, that's true of me. I just, I love winning, and I know what it is. I know psychologically that my, my sense of identity is tied too much in this, this idea of winning. And if I win, I feel good about myself. If I lose, I don't feel good about myself. I mean, I can understand all this psychology, but it doesn't change the fact that I just love winning. And not just winning, I love dominating. I want to I wanna cream the other person. And somehow that makes me feel good about myself. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to excuse that pathetic behavior of myself, but let me just go ahead and say it doesn't help that the culture I live in tends to feed that beast of competitiveness. I mean, we live in a country and a society that loves competitiveness, and we idolize winning and dominating. I mean, what, what better example than just seven days ago when we were watching the Super Bowl, and everyone's tuned in to see, will this man, Tom Brady, continue to dominate? And sure enough, he does. 
wins the seventh. He's just proving to be the GOAT, dominating completely. And you know what? We immoralize and immortalize people like that because we think that kind of person who can dominate, man, that's the dream. We all want to be successful like that. We all want to make it to the top. We want to beat everybody else around us. And I got I to gotta confess, I and a lot of you watching, we've bought this hook, line, and sinker. We think that the meaning of life is winning, is getting ahead, is being better than everybody else. But can I tell you, there's an incredible problem with that. And the problem with that is that we burn a whole lot of people around us and we end up maybe on top, but very lonely and isolated and unhappy. I don't think I really understood the, the negative attributes of selfishness and this desire to always be on top and win until I started having children of my own. And, and I started to see, I, I mean, I've got six kids, and so when there's one selfish child, it will ruin the entire night for the whole family. And I started to see what it looks like when one child tries to dominate over a younger child and how ugly that, that characteristic is, or when one child loses and they throw a fit, and I'm like, man, that's what I look like. This is horrible. When you see it from a different vantage point, you realize how ugly, how broken, how destructive selfishness is. And yet it's pervasive in so many of us even because of the culture we live in. But there is an antidote. There is a way to undo the culture's tragic message that life is about getting ahead and winning and dominating. And that antidote is Christ and his cross. This morning, the apostle Paul wants to walk us through to show us that there is a better way of living than swiping the Parcheesi board off the table every single time you lose. That there is a better way of life that brings joy and brings fulfillment. And that way is called humility. What he's going to teach us today is that if we want to go up, it begins by going down. He's going to teach us that in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Philippians. We're continuing our journey through the book. Find chapter 2. Now, while you're looking for Philippians 2, let me remind you where we were last week. We're going through this book, and last week we talked about one of the most incredible verses in the entire Bible. Philippians 1.21 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I shared with you last week about how this meaning for Paul was to say, Christ, I treasure you above anything else in this world. You are my treasure and I pursue you. Now this week, what Paul is gonna tell us is that when we treasure Christ in this vertical relationship, we'll learn to treasure others in these horizontal relationships that we have. And that's what he's gonna get into in chapter two, verse one. So let's read the passage, see what it says. Verse one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now those verses right there are incredibly powerful verses because they give us an ethic that is entirely otherworldly. Has nothing to do with this competitive, I've got to win, I've got to be on top, I've got to be the most, everything's got to center upon me. It's the, the antithesis of that. And you're getting a completely different view of a way of life. In fact, if we were just to, to park on verse three for a little bit, just, just let that verse linger over us, man, it would smack us between the eyes like a two by four because it is a profoundly different ethic. He doesn't pull any punches. In the beginning of verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Don't even let there be a shred of selfish ambition or conceit. Now that phrase, selfish ambition, is one word in Greek. It's a very rare word in Greek. This is the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. It's used very infrequently outside the New Testament, but there was one time that it was used. It was used by Aristotle in a book he wrote called Politica. 
And in that book, he uses the term to define basically like a a sleazy politician making a, a power grab so that he can get some personal gain by unjust means. It's a politician who wants to get what he wants when he wants it and by whatever means it takes to get it. I'll bet you, you and I can think of a few politicians that would fit that bill. This is this idea of a person who is so self-absorbed, so self-bent, that he'll run over whoever he has to run over to get what he wants. Every single one of us can think of people, and not just politicians. We can think of business leaders, maybe even church leaders, maybe even friends who fit that bill. It's an ugly characteristic. And then he couples that with the next one, not just selfish ambition, but he says conceit. Now, if, if you're reading a different version, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, likely it'll have another word with it. It might say vain conceit or empty conceit. And the reason why is because the root of that Greek word for conceit is based on the word vain or empty, meaningless. In other words, it's talking about a person who's conceited, but they have no reason to be conceited. They think highly of themselves, but there's no reason to think highly of themselves. It is somebody who's entirely and unfoundedly overconfident and cocky. And what he's saying, he's describing these people that if you put these two words together, you have this selfish, cocky, overconfident dude who thinks that he is God's gift to humanity and he deserves some kind of debt from society just because the brother was born. This is a person who thinks they should be on the top and they'll do whatever it takes to get there. And I'll bet you, you got some people in mind that would describe, that this would describe very well. And Paul says, though you may be surrounded by people like this, Don't you dare be one of them. Never, ever be ruled by selfish ambition or conceit. Now, I know when you hear this, some of you are going, well, praise the Lord, that's not me. I'm so glad Jason is describing somebody else. But before you think I'm talking about somebody else and there's no way I'm talking about you, let me go ahead and forewarn you. The person who would think that is the one who's selfish and confident, overconfident and cocky. You might be the very one I'm describing, but you can't see it because of the very problems that you have in this passage. And so so before you dismiss this and say, no, this isn't describing me, I want to make sure you understand. If this isn't you, then what it says in the second half of verse 3 and into verse 4 will describe you. It's going to be one or the other. So let's keep on reading. Look at what it said in the second half of verse 3. He says this. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, the other side of that is a person who is so others-focused, he, he is saying, I'm always esteeming others as more important than me. I'm looking at them, and they, I'm valuing them more than myself to the point that I'm willing to put their interests above my own. He's saying, that's the other side of this. So which one are you? Now listen, this is not the way we normally think about these two poles. You know, we, we typically think like on one side, you got the person who's self-absorbed and cocky and overconfident. And on the other side, you got somebody who's just totally selfless and living for others and esteeming others more important than themselves as the other two poles. Like on one side over here, you got Ted Turner. I don't know if you know who that is. Like used to own the Atlanta Braves, the Turner Broadcasting. He founded CNN. This guy, he's, he's hilarious. He said one time, if I just had a little more humility, I'd be perfect. Okay, that's just like extreme arrogance on this one side. And so we think, okay, you got Ted Turner on one side and then you got Gandhi on the other side, a person who's like always living for others, always doing without. And we go, okay, I'm probably not one of those two extremes. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. We, we like to, to make this kind of gray scale in the middle where we can be in that gray area, but that, that's not how it works. According to Paul, 
He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So have none of that. Therefore, you will be selfless and living for others. So you are either one or the other. You are either selfishly living for yourself, esteeming yourself above everybody else, or you are selflessly living for others, esteeming others as more important than yourselves. And the question is, which one are you? I know when you hear me define it in such radical terms, you're going, man, I can't imagine anybody in our culture being that selfless. I mean, you got like Gandhi and Mother Teresa, like Jesus, those people, but who else would be like that? And it seems so contrary to our culture. You know, truth is it was contrary to Paul's culture as well, to the Philippian culture. I had never heard this before. I, I don't know why, but when I was studying the passage, I didn't realize this. In Greek, the word that's used for humility that word in Greek culture was actually perceived as a vice and not a virtue. And the reason why I believe was a misunderstanding of humility. It was seen as somebody who was lowly and self-abasing, somebody who just had no self-esteem whatsoever. And I actually think for many of us, that's the way that we view humility. We wrongly view humility as somebody's like, man, I'm pathetic, I'm no good, I got nothing to offer this world. We look at it as somebody who's got low self-esteem. But low self-esteem is not the same thing as humility. Being insecure is not the same thing as humility. In fact, biblical humility requires a lot of self-assurance, a lot of security of identity in Christ. Because ultimately, to, to quote Andrew Murray, a great thinker and, and Christian thought leader, he said, you know, humility ultimately is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It, it's thinking more about others than you do about yourself. It's, it's not saying I'm pathetic, it's saying, I don't even think about myself. How are you? How can I build you up? That's completely otherworldly. And, and I want you to know, when we get that kind of mindset where we center our attention on others instead of ourselves, it is so refreshing to the people around us. I, I've, I've made this an experiment for myself. It's one of the things that I feel like the Lord has put on my heart to really pursue this year. And it's, it's esteeming others above myself, giving them attention and not demanding attention come back to me, which I got to confess to you is not natural. I'm, I'm the youngest in my family. And therefore in growing up, the attention was always on me. And so I, it's, I struggle with it. It's hard for me, but I feel like the Lord is calling me to say, focus on other people. And one of the best ways I've been able to do that is by having lunches with people. So as restaurants have been opening back up, I've made it a, a, a plan that every single day that I can, I try to have a lunch with either a different staff member or church member or pastor in the city. And I make it my goal to finish my meal before they finish <laughs> and not because I'm competitive and I got to beat them. The reason why I want to finish my meal before them is because that means I'm listening more than I'm talking. I'm asking them questions and I'm, I'm putting the attention on them and letting them talk to me. And I'm just sitting there eating away while they're talking, asking some more questions. And I figure if I can finish my meal before them, that means I'm doing a good job of listening, which is hard for me. But I've discovered the more I've been intentional this way, the more I hear people when I'm done with the conversation going, Jason, thank you so much, man. I feel so uplifted by you just listening to me and praying for me and hearing my story. In fact, I had lunch with a gentleman, he's new to our church, and, and he said something that, that both broke my heart and delighted me at the same time. He said, Jason, I, I gotta be honest with you, I, I didn't ever think that a pastor of a large church like this would go out to lunch with a brand new person at the church, but I'm so glad you did. And it broke my heart on one side because I, this is how people view pastors of large churches, like they're aloof and untouchable, and that, that's terrible. But it delighted me because I was able to show this person something different that my attention was on them because they deserved it. And I had a great lunch discovering this person's story. I'm amazed at how people respond. Other pastors of the city just saying, Jason, thank you so much. It, it is 
amazing that when we just act a little selflessly, when we put attention on somebody else instead of ourselves, how beautifully refreshing that is for people. And the reason why is because it's so amazingly rare. It's just not common. People in our world are used to selfishness. We're used to people taking advantage of other people because, hey, we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We just got to live this way. And when somebody says, I refuse to do it, I choose to operate in humility, I choose to esteem somebody else above myself, all of a sudden people go, wow, man, you're different. And then when you couple that with the second part where we actually put other people's interests above our own, people's minds go, they can't even fathom why we would be that way. It just seems so foreign. And the reason why it's so shocking is because what they're seeing in us is the very character and nature of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians. He says, here's why I want you to be this way. Here's why I don't want you to have selfish ambition or conceit. Here's why I want you to esteem others more important than yourself and why I want you to look out for the interests of others above your own because that was the very nature of Jesus himself. As Paul keeps going in this passage, listen to how he builds his argument based on the, the character, on the nature of Jesus. Picking back up in verse five, it says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what Paul is describing here is a dissension that Jesus went, a humbling that Jesus went by in, in stages. God down to man, down to servant, down to cross. Just boom, lower and lower and lower and lower. Started back in verse six by saying, he was in the form of God. Now what that means isn't that he kind of was like God. That, that phrase in the form of in Greek means of the exact same nature and essence of God. Paul is saying this is the second person of the Trinity, divine God himself. He was in the form of God, but it says that he emptied himself and he didn't try to grasp onto it. He says he was in the form of God, but didn't count equality with God as something to be held on to, grasped, exploited, taken advantage of. What Paul is talking about there is that Jesus could have clung to the fact that as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the King of glory, he had rights and privileges and blessings and benefits that came with that title, and he could have clung on to them, but he said, no, no, I release them. I give them up freely. And that's what it means by he emptied himself as it says in the beginning of verse seven. Now that phrase, he emptied himself. Mike Wyrick and I and Ender, we were talking as, about, as we were preparing the messages about, about that phrase, emptied himself, and how we could build a whole message just on those two words, thinking about the theology there, that almighty God would empty himself. Now it didn't mean he gave up his divinity. It meant that he allowed himself to take upon limitations. He drained the divinity bank account that he couldn't spend from it anymore when he was on earth. Now, when you think about the magnitude of emptying something, the, the level they have before they empty it determines the magnitude of that emptying. I know, I know that's confusing. Let me just illustrate it this way. So my eldest daughter just got a bank account recently and, and, and she's done a great job. She's babysat, so she's, uh, she's saved her money. She's got a few hundred dollars in that bank account. Now, it would be a, a pretty big deal for her to empty her bank account, to give up several hundred dollars. That, that'd be a big deal. But imagine if Jeff Bezos empties his bank account. 190 something billion dollars, the richest man in the world, former CEO of Amazon. If that brother empties his bank account, that's a lot bigger than my daughter emptying her bank account. Why? Because he's got so much more. 
And that's just scratching the surface. Now you think about infinite, the God who's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, saying, I choose to take on limitations. I empty myself of my infiniteness. We can't even grasp the magnitude of those two words. He emptied himself. But he chose to do so, God, and he empties himself. And it says he takes on the form of a man. But not just any man. If, if you look really closely in verse 7, it says he takes on the form of a servant. Now, depending on what version you're reading of the Bible, there, there's probably a little footnote next to it, and it'll be a little thing down below that'll say, in the Greek, it's doulos, which means a servant or a bond servant or a slave. In other words, it's referring to somebody who is owned by somebody else. Now, stop and think about that. The owner of the universe descends himself to be a place where he is owned, a slave. The highest of highs taking on the lowest of lows. And actually, his slavery wasn't the lowest of lows. It was even less than that. It says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He could go no lower. Now, I know, I know you and I, the vast majority of you watching this, you're familiar with the message of the, of the Bible, of Jesus, and the, you hear about the cross, and there's nothing to you that that scandalizes you because of that statement. But let me guarantee you, the Philippians, when they heard that message, it was a scandal to them because they were Roman. And the cross, it was a Roman torture mechanism. It'd be like you and I thinking about the electric chair. That, 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 was, that was synonymous with it. So in Roman culture, and remember, if, if you didn't hear the first sermon, I say this every single week, go back and listen to the first sermon, get the context, because I explained some of this. But Philippi, where he's writing to, was a Roman colony. They were so proud of being like Romans. They considered themselves little Rome. They were Roman citizens, the vast majority of them. And because of that, their mindset was Roman. So when they thought of a cross, they thought of an instrument of torture and murder and execution for the most vile and lowest of humanity. In fact, in biblical times, Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was considered too low, too base for them to be crucified. It was reserved almost entirely for slaves. Only slaves could be deemed worthless enough to be executed by crucifixion. And yet he says to these Philippian people, your savior, he's been given the electric chair. That's how low he is. He's been given the worst form of execution possible, the lowest of lows. I promise you this was scandalous for the Philippians. But Paul didn't speak about this as it was a shame, as if it was some, something that Jesus did wrong. He spoke of this as something magnificent. And the reason why is one small little word in verse 8. If you look back at verse 8, it says, and you know, he, he, found in human self, he found himself in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. That word himself is so incredibly important. It says that Jesus humbled himself. Let me tell you why that matters. It means that the Jews did not humble Jesus. It means that Pilate didn't humble Jesus. Herod didn't humble Jesus. Caesar didn't humble Jesus. Jesus humbled Jesus. It meant that Jesus chose to bring this upon himself. It was his choice to have such radical self-humiliation. And the reason why is because there was no selfish ambition or conceit in Jesus. The reason why was because he considered others more important than himself and he was looking out for their interest above his own. The very thing Paul told them to do, Jesus exemplified perfectly. That's the reason why he chose to bring sinners like you and I back into a right relationship with his father because he loved us enough to humble himself. It was his choice. And because it was his choice, he received a glory unlike anybody else. Like I said at the beginning, you're about to see with Jesus, the only way up is down. 
And Jesus was no fool. He knew he had a father that if he obeyed him and went down, his father would lift him back up. And this is exactly what you see in one of my favorite parts of the Bible, verses nine through 11. Let's finish up the passage. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, I, I, get, I get excited when I read those verses. And I start thinking about this truth that, that Jesus, he so trusted his Father. And you gotta remember, Jesus did not wanna go to the cross. Go back, read the Gospels, read about the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in the garden, he's going, if there's any other way, Daddy, for this cup to pass through me, if there's any other way for your will to be accomplished than going to the cross, please let it happen. And the father apparently told him there was no other way because Jesus said, but not my will, your will be done. That's why it says he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He was obeying his father's will, but he was no fool because he knew that if he obeyed his father and his father said, go down, it was because his father would lift him back up. And that's exactly what you see in this passage. It says, therefore, because you chose to humble yourself, therefore, it says God highly exalted him. That phrase in Greek, highly exalted, it's one word. It's, it's huper upsao. Upsao means to exalt and huper means hyper. He was hyper exalted by the Father. In other words, there is no one who can be exalted any more than Jesus. The Father hyper exalted him above everything else and said, bestowed upon him the name that is above every single name. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this idea of bestowing the name. Some people go, okay, well, he bestowed the name Jesus upon him. Well, no, that's not what he's talking about because before the resurrection, he already had the name Jesus. He got that name in the incarnation when he was born. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says he bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that name is the title Lord. It's what you see in verse 11. He says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that's a new title given to Jesus. Before this moment, before the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, only Yahweh God is referred to as Lord. And now after the resurrection, because of the obedience and the exaltation of the Father, now Jesus gets to own that title, which is why the Christian worship is to Jesus, why we pray in the name of Jesus, because he now has the title of Lord. It's why we say Jesus is Lord. And what it's saying is that one day everybody is going to know it. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now those two symbols, the knee and the tongue, they're very important. With the knee, you see humility. You see submission before God. And with the tongue, you see confession of truth, declaration that he really is Lord. And what Paul was saying to these Philippians is that one day, everybody in heaven above and the earth beneath and the waters below, everybody will know that they have to humble themselves and submit before this king and confess that he is Lord. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment and think about what this must have meant to the Philippians. Here you have this really small band of believers, these brothers and sisters in this city, and they're so used to being persecuted. Everybody else around them says, no, Caesar is Lord. And here you have these Christians that are going, no, Jesus is Lord. But they're almost scared to say it because they know they're mocked for saying it. They're persecuted for saying it. They have no power because everybody else seems to have power around them. And here comes Paul he says, guys, I know you're persecuted right now. I, I know this seems overwhelming for you, but let me tell you some incredible news. One day, everybody's gonna know. Everybody is gonna bow down before this king. Not just you believers in Philippi. 
Not, not just the city of Philippi, not just the Roman Empire, but every creature in heaven above and the earth beneath and the waters below will know. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you got to know these Philippians, when they read these words, they said, praise Jesus. We've chosen well. It's so hard to follow him in this city, but we know one day we're going to be with the one who's victorious. And it's going to be worth it. Can you imagine what this meant for these Philippians? After Paul has said, I know you have opponents, I know you're going to be persecuted, but take heart, you're with the one who overcomes. Trust in him. Man, what a powerful message Paul had for him. But, but don't confuse his message or make it too light. The same message is true for us. It's a message of encouragement. Absolutely, one day we know everyone's going to know that Jesus really is king. But it's not enough just to know that. Paul says, don't just know this, imitate it. The whole point wasn't just celebrate that he's king. It was imitate what Jesus did. If you want to go up, you have to go down. You have to humble yourself. And I think this is the message that the Father has for you and me today. If we want to go up, we have to humble ourselves. We have to choose to go down. We have to humble ourselves by our own self-will. Consider the needs of others above our own. To look at their interests above our own. Now, I know when I say this, some of you go, well, Jason, man, that's, that's dangerous. If, if, I, if I'm always considering others better than me and looking out for their needs, who's looking out for my needs? I mean, won't people take advantage of me? Won't people walk all over me? Won't I just be a doormat if I do that? I mean, that's, that's risky. And you're absolutely right. It is a risky move to humble yourself before the people around you. But I want to suggest to you that faith says when Jesus followed that pattern, he was exalted, you will be too. It will be worth it. In fact, I, I can just, I'm thinking about, I can think of three ways that it'll be worth it for you to humble yourself, to choose the pathway of humility. First one, because it will make you a magnetic person. There's something so refreshing about being somebody who is so others focused who never needs a spotlight, who never demands attention, who doesn't always have to win, person who doesn't knock the Parcheesi table off the board whenever you, you lose, a person who's just gracious. There's just something you're drawn to them. I guarantee you, if you walk around with this humble lifestyle, people will ask you, how are you this way? Why do you give so much with no expectation of return? Why do you care so much about everybody else around you? How'd you get this way? And you're gonna be able to say, let me tell you about a savior who cared so much more for me. First thing is it makes you magnetic. Second thing, that it does to walk in humility is it gives you incredible joy. I, I believe that humble people are some of the, the, the happiest people I have ever seen in this world. People who are okay when other people win, they, they relish in the successes of other people instead of feeling threatened by those. They love it when other people get the limelight. They just love lifting up other people. They find joy in these moments. You wanna know who the most miserable people I know are? The people who always have to be on the top. The people who mow down everybody else around them to get there and they are isolated and they have no friends and they have no joy. They're always unhappy and they get to the top and the top isn't even that great. Joy comes from humility. But the third reason, I think the most important reason of all is because when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt us. I'm gonna be talking about this in just a few days at the Lenten service. I hope you plan to be a part of it on Wednesday at 6.30 when we kick off the Lenten season, but I'm going to be reading from James chapter four, and I'm going to read verse 10. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little, a little sneak peek of it. James 4, 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
I don't know about you, but I like the idea of God exalting me because I think God knows how to do it well. And if he says, if I humble myself, if I go down, then he'll exalt me. Man, I'm looking for that. And so my faith in God says, if you're going to exalt me, then I'll choose whatever pathway you want me to take. Listen, I know humility is countercultural. I know this kind of message doesn't sit well with a lot of us. But let me go ahead and, and tell you a little, little newsflash for you. Humility has always been countercultural. It's just not our world. I, I want to I read a quote for you. It's, uh, it's written by, by Charles Swindoll in a book, a, a commentary he wrote about Philippians too. But he's just describing history and the way it's given us a contrary message than Christ. He wrote, Greece said, be wise, know yourself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Religion says, be good, conform yourself. Hedonism says, be sensuous, satisfy yourself. Education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident, assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive, please yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. But Christ says, be unselfish, humble yourself. Listen, Christ's way is contrary to everybody else's way. But his way is the only way to life. And so my question for you is, are you willing to be unselfish and humble yourself to trust in his wisdom above your own? Let me tell you, it is impossible without belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will call you to bow your knee before him and to trust in him, confess that he is Lord other than the gospel. Because you have to look at the message that God himself wouldn't just say, I want all my little peons to humble themselves before me. But God himself would take on flesh and show us and I'm going to humble myself to show you what it looks like. This is the way to life. He said, I'm that kind of God. And when you see the gospel, then you and I can say, I can trust a God like that. Are you willing to trust him? Listen, one day, every knee will bow in submission to Christ. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's either going to be by choice or one day it's going to be too late and it's going to be by force. And my question for you is, which one is it going to be for you? It is not enough just to say you like Jesus. It is not enough to watch an online church service. There comes a moment you have to choose to humble yourself, to bow your knee before Christ and to say, Jesus Christ, you're not just the Lord. You are my Lord. You are my master. And until you make that decision, you haven't found the power of God exalting you. Listen, if you're ready to make that decision today, then we want to partner with you. There is an incredible thing you can do. You can express your faith, your declaration of Christ as Lord through an act called baptism. And just think about baptism for a moment. Baptism is the perfect picture of what I've been talking about. At the way up is down. What do you do when you get baptized? You go down under the water. You're going down in humility. And then what happens? You come up. And you're clean and you're new and you have this picture of new life. Baptism is a symbol that when we humble ourselves, he exalts us. And I believe there are some of you and you need to follow that symbol. Declare your faith in Christ. So if you need to be baptized or one of your children need to be baptized, then I want to encourage you to let us know. Very simple way. Just text the word next step to 94253. That's all you got to do. Or you can go straight to filler.org slash next step. There's a brief form you fill out. Let us know. A pastor will reach out to you and we'll get you signed up for the baptism celebration taking place in just two weeks, February 28th. We want to get you ready for it. So let us know. Listen, I also know many of you, you're believers watching this. You've been baptized. You declared your faith in Jesus. But let me go ahead and forewarn you. It is a daily battle to maintain a selfless attitude, to be humble because pride will creep right back in every single day. And there may be some of you watching this and you need to take a moment 
to say, God, I need to confess some pride in my life. I need to confess there have been moments when I've been self-centered, when I've been easily angered, when I haven't delighted in somebody else's victory. I've actually been jealous or I've, I've been conceited or I've been selfishly ambitious or I've considered myself better than others. Maybe you just need to say, God, forgive me. Maybe you need to get down on your face before the Lord and say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. Maybe you need to humble yourself anew. Take that posture even right now. During this next song, you have a chance to wrestle with the Lord. And then I'm gonna lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper and when we're done with that song, as we celebrate the reason why we know when we humble ourselves, it'll be worth it. Get your hearts ready during this song.